had a dream about this place. episode 31 of ghost stories for the end of the world hope you're good my friends we're at another stop on the river another mind melter of an episode tonight won't keep you too long because this is quite a long one um but yeah we had jimmy Fallon gong stop by to discuss the assassination of rfk uh, remember um, that you can hit us up at Ghost Stories End on Twitter. Uh, you can sub and show some love on the Patreon. And um, yeah, I, I will simply allow the music to fade in now. A nice little transition uh, to an hour and a half or so of brain warping um, conversation here. So yeah. Thanks a lot, guys, and I'll catch you next week. I, what I was thinking I could do is sort of establish the uh, just a brief context of 1968 because that year keeps popping up through this little series that I'm doing. Yeah. And then we'll go from there about Bobby Kennedy. Um, I did not know there were this many layers to this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, everywhere. I, I read through that fr- thread that you sent me and then I was kind of branching off to sort of look at references and for me that it's even spookier than the jfk one to be fair maybe because it's it's not as discussed i don't know yeah because like i feel like it's more easy to tell like Mm. the the mind controls more out there there's clearly stuff going on with jfk you know a reasonable person could just choose to ignore a lot but with this it's like right there yeah, yeah. Um, it feels, well, I'll get to um, what I think is behind why a lot of it is so strange compared to JFK, but that'll be in mm-hmm. a little while. Um, so, yeah. So, a bit of, we'll sort of situate ourselves in 1968. Um, year keeps popping up again and again as we go along. That's basically when the the game got rough, I guess, is how it's spoken about by um 
you know, hippie veterans of the time. So you've got the, the Tet Offensive kicks everything mm-hmm. off. Um, the My Lai Massacre happens, and I believe that happens the same day as RFK actually announces his presidential run, or that he's going to run in the primaries at least. Yeah. Um, April, you've got Martin Luther King. Uh, you have the rise of Nixon as well, which is kind of looming everywhere above this story, um, is the ascendant right. You've got the riots in D.C., in Baltimore, in Chicago, after King gets killed. Then you've got the Democratic Convention, the absolute shitstorm there. Lyndon Johnson increases the maximum amount of U.S. troops in Vietnam and at the same time passes the Civil Rights Act, which I guess uh, the fee that they exacted for him passing civil rights legislation, I suppose that was increase our presence in, in Vietnam. Um, and then, of course, you get to Robert Kennedy, Ambassador Hotel, and things get even stranger and even wilder. So I guess I'd like to open with your measure of RFK as a political candidate up to that point. We'd have to go long on this bit if you don't want to, but... Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, RFK up to this point, I mean the most visible, most notable thing he had been doing was as attorney general for his brother's administration. Right. Mm-hmm. And I would, cons- I would characterize RFK's actions as attorney general, as aggressive and <laughs> uh, very almost authoritarian. Like he, yeah. he with JFK went very hard against us steel. They went very hard against the mafia they went very hard against their political enemies. Yeah. And it did not engender a lot of good political will, I guess you could say. Mm, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, I guess, J. Edgar Hoover would be the one of the, the main sort of antagonists of, of that part of uh, RFK's story. Um, but then at the same time, they were happy to kind of cut deals with each other on the side. Although publicly, they didn't mm-hmm. seem to get along very well. Exactly. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so he announces his candidacy and my impression is that from reading around, he never accepted the Warren Commission's report about JFK. He, he knew something else was going on, but he never spoke publicly on it. Exactly. He didn't speak publicly on it, which is important because I think he knew, uh, it would be more strategic to, uh, try to get into power, and he had a very good chance of becoming president, mm-hmm. at which point he could have presumably actually done something about it, yeah. which was not the case, you know, just <laughs> even as a senator, if you could believe that. So, I read a Politico article in sort of the prep for this, and his son, Robert Jr., has said that he would openly talk at home about how the Warren Commission report was uh, suspect how there was loads of evidence that had been left out of it or overlooked. Um, so I guess that's definitely where he was heading. If he got into the white house, he was going to kind of blow the lid on the whole thing. Yeah. Because before I really got into researching like everything, including the Kennedy family, I always just as someone who you know didn't know anything, I wondered why don't the Kennedys like talk about this stuff? And yeah. it's like, oh, they know not to now. <laughs> by after sixty eight, 
Yeah, it feels like JFK was the warning to any other kind of would-be reformers and RFK was the warning to anyone who wants to investigate that type of thing. Here's here's what the price is. So, yeah, I guess then um, we should get to – so it's the Ambassador Hotel. He's just won the California primary as RFK and things are looking pretty good. He's given his speech uh, uh, in the – where was he giving his speech in the hotel? So it's interesting because they were there the whole day. And, you know, for your listeners, this is June 5th, 1968. Mm-hmm. He is there with his whole retinue. There's reporters. There's, you know, lots of politicos of all types. And they're in the Ambassador Hotel. And they are consistently going to – in between different uh, big halls, basically, in the hotel – and in this particular instant, I think it's later in the night because the results had come in. So he was actually going from one of the rooms, taking a shortcut through the kitchen, which he had done, I think, several times that night already. Just a little, you know, uh, what's the word? Shortcut. And in the kitchen, that is where things happen. Shortly before midnight, he and his retinue, they're going from one hall to another when he is shot. And from what people see, the man who shot him was a short little Palestinian guy named what later they would find out that he was named Sirhan Sirhan. He was standing several feet away in front of RFK. He pulls a gun and appears to shoot Robert F. Kennedy, and then he gets wrestled to the ground and arrested. And then justice prevailed, and that's the end of the story. Yeah. Problem solved. (laughs) They they caught him. Wrap it up. But, I mean, so from the off, there's a lot about this that is very strange. Uh, The timing is the most obvious thing, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Kennedy's kind of in the ascendance. It's looking like there's a very good chance that he will be the next president if he manages to win the the nomination to run and i'm trying to think where should we even begin starting to take apart the official yeah so right off the bat there's a bunch of strange things happening because people noticed sirhan sirhan acting strange before he shot or before he pulled on Kennedy. Hmm. He was seen multiple times with a woman wearing a polka dotted dress. That woman was seen later running around the hotel, running out of the hotel, shouting, we got him, we killed him. That always, that detail always freaks me out. I think of, of everything. Um, the woman in the polka dot dress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's a, I wouldn't call it an urban legend because it's actually true, but there are pretty substantiated stories that every year on the anniversary for many years, a woman wearing a polka dotted dress would show up at the hotel. Get the fuck out, man. Whether or not the scene of the crime, whether or not it's the woman or someone just messing around, like every year someone would do that. So take that as you will. Jesus. Right. So they have Siran in custody. Um, and the what were the motives that he he is supposed to have had for why he killed RFK? 
So initially he doesn't remember doing it, which is notable, mm. but the, the short answer is he was convicted of murdering Senator Kennedy supposedly because Kennedy supported Israel. Sirhan Sirhan was a Palestinian Christian immigrant, and that was supposed to be the motive. So it was a, an act of a Palestinian solidarity, I suppose, is, is how they'd like to spin it. Correct. And yeah, very interesting. However, that was never, it's like, it's not that Sirhan didn't care about Palestine. Like he grew up in a refugee camp. It mm. holds up in as far as it, like, it's like not a terrible like motive. It it's conforms just, to what's known about his, his background and his life. Correct. Yeah. It's just with everything else, there's a uh, reason to think that it's probably not the real motive. Um, I, I also read that he actually liked Robert Kennedy prior to the assassination. Uh, he'd been intending to vote for him. He'd also liked JFK as well. And, um, or he'd at least expressed, you know, support for them. And th- I've read accounts of how he seemed surprised at his own actions during the uh, the subsequent interrogations. He couldn't understand why he'd done it. Yeah, correct. I mean, it doesn't match what I guess you could call, for lack of a better term, like organic political assassins who generally won't stop talking about their political motivations and even have like manifestos and like yeah. clearly talk to people for years about their grievances, like none of that stuff. I suppose Lee Harvey Oswald would actually be a more plausible assassin from that point of view, because we at least do know that he he would not shut up about his political beliefs and he was involved in a lot of different, um, you know, the Fair Play for Cuba committee and whatnot. So if you wanted to give it a surface level reading, he at least, you can make him for a more convincing political assassin than you can Saran, Saran. Definitely on the face of it, that's for sure. So, yeah, I guess that would get to another thought I have about whether or not using Saran was kind of a, a last-ditch, half-thought-out measure. It, it wasn't as well sort of planned through as Oswald. Yeah, I mean, I think that Oswald was also being used for other things, mm. whereas Sirhan might have been a more single-use well, actually, we'll get to that. We'll get into some of his deep background a little bit later, I think. But uh, let's maybe, if you want, we can go through some of the physical evidence that suggests that Sirhan did not act alone. I had no idea about half of this stuff that you um, brought to my attention while we were prepping for this. So, yeah, um, give us a run through. Yeah, and I just want to say up top, too, um, most of this I drew from Lisa Pisa's amazing book, uh, a lie too big to fail yeah, uh, a great about book. the assassination. So just plugging that most of this is not, you know, my own research a little later, there are some threads that I have connected beyond that, but all the physical evidence that's, you know, her work. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm not going to dwell too much on the physical stuff, just like with the JFK assassination, the magic bullet, you know, all that stuff about trajectories. Like I'm not a ballistics expert. I'm in complete agreement there, man. When I um, did the, I sort of did a, a JFK assassination assassination adjacent um, series, and I just skipped all the ballistic stuff because it's more, you know, I, I'm not an expert, so I don't know how yeah, what to it, read. Like, it. 
it's worth having like the basic overview of like things, but like in the truly granular level, like I'm, I'm not going to like die on that hill. So the, the main thing that (laughs) we need to know is that a bunch of witnesses reported hearing more bullets fired than, than Sirhan's gun held. Right. And they also, people have reported seeing more bullet holes than his gun could have held. And these bullet holes were kind of uh, sprinkled in front of RFK as well. Is that correct? They were pocking the walls ahead of him. Correct. So some of it you could chalk into maybe like bullets bouncing around, Mm. like, but there was, it wasn't like he had a six shooter and there were seven. It was more like, I don't have the exact numbers, but it was like, yeah, Sirhan had like a, I think it was like an eight shooter and there were like 13 like bullet holes. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, uh, and then the other thing is that the coroner's report uh, was basically the coroner's report showed that the bullets actually entered Robert Kennedy from the, from behind him. Right. From right to left. Yeah. Which is not where Sirhan Sirhan was standing. So we'll kind of, to try and paint a, a visual picture of the, the situation, if we freeze frame at that moment, Siran is he on a table, I believe, standing on a table? Um, no, I think he was standing in a crowd, um, I think maybe about six or eight feet in front of Robert Kennedy. Robert Kennedy walking with, you know, maybe like three abreast with some people behind him. Right. Walking into the kitchen, I think. Right. Sirhan standing, like, I think around a doorway or something. And firing at him from about six to eight feet away. Right. So he was in front of him, uh, six to eight feet away. The shots um, that came from behind him, they were, were they contact wounds as well? Is that right? That's right. They had powder burns indicative of close quarters contact to the firearm. Jesus Christ. Right. So who is the guy that we allege may have been the one pulling the trigger there from behind. So to, let's see here, the guy that we think, and and, you know, a lot of people think this was a security guard named Thane Eugene Caesar. Amazing name. (laughs) He's got the, the three names in case they needed to, you know, (laughs) burn him. (laughs) But so I wanted to actually ask you about this. Because I know you covered the Brabant killings. Yeah. And I know that security guards played a prominent role in some of the suspects. Yeah, yeah. Now, here we have Thane Eugene Caesar, who is also a security guard. Yeah. (laughs) What uh, significance do you think might security guards have in political assassinations? Well, I think, I mean, the most obvious one, I suppose, is uh, you have a man who is on the inside of the inside. So he is, he's as in this case, he is literally right next to the target um, that you want to take out. And then beyond that, a lot of the time, security guards will either have worked for or want to work for a, usually a state security um, agency. Um, in the case of the Brabant killers, there's a lot of suspicion that they were, um, I was going to say, uh, they were gendarmes that had 
gone off the reservation, but I mean, it was Belgium in the 80s, so all the state security <laughs> services had left the reservation. Um, yeah. But yeah, the beauty of that is it's much harder to, to um, pin anything on somebody who has the connections to make things like forensic evidence disappear. Uh, it's much harder to build a case against someone who already has a reputation, I suppose, for being quite competent and good at their job. I mean, I sh- I hope that this would be the only political assassination that Thane Eugene Caesar would be, you know, connected to. Um, <laughs> so, you know, if if it's a one-off, then there's no real pattern of behavior that you can you can pin on him. Um, all of this stuff kind of it makes it much easier to disguise his role, you know, in any kind of uh, I was going to say deep state activity. Uh, I guess uh, I guess that works for this. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and then what would your take be on like the psychological makeup of most security guards? Well, I mean, they're effectively. Um, I mean, if if you're dealing with this kind of security guard at this level, um, mm. you're talking about someone who is basically immoral, indifferent to the people that they're guarding. Really, they're kind of like uh, low rent mercenaries, you know? Um, yeah, like. <laughs> My perception of most of the security guards, at least like this would be relevant to maybe Thane Eugene Caesar, is he's not a like tier one operator. He's not like a good enough to actually be a mercenary. Yeah. But yeah. he like aspires to be. Most definitely. And yeah. I mean, that the, just may, go ahead. So, sorry. Yeah. Um, You're fine. The thing about mall cops and mall security guards, you know, frustrated police officers, um, it holds true, even for guys involved in political assassinations as well. Yeah, and I just think of like that Parallax View movie where <laughs> they're precisely the type of person that they would want to get involved in something. Yeah, 100%. I mean, you can dangle anything in front of them, you know. Uh, oh, would you like to join the FBI? Maybe even the CIA? What would you like then? What What would you like to see uh, after this? And he just, mm-hmm. you know, names his price. They're under no obligation to give him anything <laughs> because they can always yeah. burn him as well if he starts threatening to, you know, make a noise about it. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. So let's go through a couple of facts about Thane Eugene Caesar. So let's do it. Let's see here. Right off the bat, he's a Cuban American, which, like, far be it from me to criticize the Cuban American community, but we know that it's a vector for both far right and intelligence connections, right? Yeah. I mean, every time they've popped up in this series, it's usually been some combination of the two. Exactly. And more than that, Caesar was employed by the Ace Guard Service to protect Robert Kennedy at the Ambassador Hotel. Uh, He was also working uh, in the same capacity as a security guard at the Lockheed Aircraft Plant in Burbank. Just for my listeners who are hearing an odd noise right now, that's your spook antenna perking. Just roll with it. It's fine. It's going to get worse, so (laughs) just get ready. So he also, Caesar, also worked security at the Hughes Aircraft Corporation. There are not enough uh, Metal Gear Solid guard alert sound effects for (laughs) what I'm experiencing right now. the number of the number of intelligence assets who have quote worked at Hughes Aircraft could choke a horse. Yeah, um, I mean, listeners will remember Robert Mayhew, who was kind of like Hughes's man Friday, and also uh, died in the wool 
uh, quadruple agent. I lose track with that guy quite a lot, um, trying to figure out who who he was really working yeah, for. To the point where it almost doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, voting records show that Caesar had registered to vote for George Wallace's American Independent Party, which meant that he was a far-right Cuban-American security guard yep. working for companies in close association with defense industry contractors. And that's the guy immediately to the right of RFK when he gets shot, which is where the bullets originate from. Okay, I got it. <laughs> I can't think of a more responsible man to place in such a position of responsibility. <laughs> I, I don't know what your issue is with any of this. Like, it sounds fine. <laughs> So, like, people pretty much solved the case, like, I mean, like, amateurs and, like, leftists and, like, people figured this out within uh, fairly early on. Like, this isn't like we cracked the case or anything. Like, people have suspected Caesar of being the shooter for a long time. In many ways, uh, reading through this, it feels like the kind of thing that is designed to almost insult your intelligence. Um it feels like the the raw exercise of power and you easily piecing it together is the point of a lot of this with, with RFK. The fact that you know there is something hinky about it and you, you can't do anything at all. It feels like they want you to feel that, you know. Yeah, I think demoralization was the point for mm -hmm. sure. Like with JFK, I think that they were trying to get away with it. With this, I think they were like, no, like the, the people need to know there is no hope. Yeah, it's a definite fuck you is this one. Um, I mean, I'm trying to think of something comparable. I guess Epstein would be the most obvious one where, yeah, the, the whole point is that you know there is something more going on. Um yeah, and yeah, job done. I mean, it did a, a very good job of demoralizing uh, the left at the time in '68. Yeah, and I mean, in the broader culture, the the right just went in ascendancy, like you said. Yeah, uh, the hippies became, I would say, both solipsistic and like nihilistic yeah. to a certain degree yeah. from this point on. Yeah, hundred um, percent. So. So you want to talk about the investigation? Let's do it. This is where it gets even better. Oh, it's so much better. Okay. So the LAPD sets up an investigation that they call Special Operation Senator. The acronym is SUS. For fuck's sake. Right. And <laughs> Which, I mean, that wasn't in like the parlance yet, but still. <laughs> and I guess uh, for listeners, by the time this episode goes out, we will have thoroughly established by this point that the LAPD was effectively a front for the CIA at this point in the late 1960s. Would you say that's a fair assessment? I would say at a minimum that yeah. there were there were probably more CIA uh, assets in the LAPD than maybe any other part of the country. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, so the investigation is literally, the acronym is SUS. Um, <laughs> Um, the investigation is run by the LAPD's Ramparts Division, which for your listeners who maybe don't know uh, Los Angeles lore, that's like the most corrupt division. <laughs> and they've had their own uh, scandals, the, Ram the Ramparts Division. And that is such an interesting rabbit hole on its own. 
Yeah, could you um, give us a very brief sort of overview of the Rampart's division? Um, yeah, in broad strokes, we're talking like police moonlighting for gangsters, doing murder for hire, selling drugs, ripping off drug dealers, running drug dealers, uh, gangs. This ties into a lot of the gangs doing killings with their own tattoos it ties to all of it basically ramparts was extremely dirty and i think the feds had to come in and run the uh div- run the division for a time i think and if- i think it i think it broke in like the 90s i want to say yeah um ballpark and it also ties into some of the rap beefs and the high profile uh killings of rappers if you can believe that i have heard something about that before um basically whoever's paying they'll do work for them it seems to be mm-hmm. the vibe um and it also kind of neatly confirmed that a lot of uh james elroy's more fanciful sort of work was actually if anything too conservative <laughs> in, um... oh yeah no i don't think he was actually exaggerating on anything <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah ramparts and then the investigation goes ahead and th- I, d- I don't even know how to begin <laughs> to um, approach what a, I was going to say a botch, but I mean, of course, all of this was deliberate. Um, yeah. So I think the best way to go through it, it would be to look at the guy running the investigation. Right. Let's do and that. This guy was named Lieutenant Manny Pena and Manny Pena was a he was a counterintelligence officer in World War II, so he was in the OSS. Yep. Um, and <laughs> he was really interesting. He was trilingual. I think he spoke English, Spanish, and I want to say maybe French. And he had worked with the LAPD, where in the line of duty, he found the opportunity to kill eleven people, like officially. Basically, around this same time in the LAPD, they were innovating the use of the SWAT teams, which, like, that's been cast. And, like, that's like a revisionist history. Basically, the LAPD was making and innovating just having death squads on the police force. Yeah. And that would be, among other things, something he was involved with. Yeah, I I think I'm, I'm definitely taking you off on a tangent here. I'm sorry. Um, but... That does tie into something uh, that we've mentioned in this series already, which is California was kind of being used as a, a, lab, a lab, I suppose, for different kinds of political technology. And the LAPD with SWAT teams basically being death squads definitely conforms to that um, thesis, I suppose. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah. Uh, so, Pena, OSS agent. And I have to say, it's remarkable how how much solidarity all these ex-OSS officers had, you know, to what became the CIA and how decades later you can find them still putting in work and doing the rounds on behalf of the agency. They stayed on the books. Yeah. There's no, what, what, what did Putin say? I think there's no such thing as a former KGB agent. Yeah. It doesn't appear that there's any such thing as a former OSS or CIA agent either. It definitely accords with the idea that these things have become or were intended always to be kind of mafias for the uh, ruling class because that 
that's the same sort of vibe I get reading about that. You know, there's no there's no such thing as an ex mobster. You either mm-hmm. you either are one or you're dead. Um, I I've always felt that reading through about these OSS guys, especially. Absolutely. So let's. So I one day I would love to do like a deep dive on Lieutenant Pena, but mm. in the year prior to uh, sixty eight. Uh, he actually, Lieutenant Pena resigned from the LAPD and he resigned so that he could start working with USAID. Yep. <laughs> and in USAID, which for your listeners, I'm sure a lot of them might know that it is more or less, I mean, it does other things, but it's a also a CIA front. 100%, or, yeah. Or at least provides cover. Mm. Um, so w- in USAID, Lieutenant Pena was working with Dan Mitrioni, which if you're, some of your audience might know who Dan Mitrioni is, but Dan Mitrioni was also a quote, USAID worker, <laughs> but his real work, he was a CIA officer or at least uh, contracting. And he was known to be traveling all over Latin America, teaching torture to different right-wing regimes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, hang on a sec. I can't believe I've lost this note. I had something on Mitrioni and I can't find it. Um, ignore me, man. Sorry. <laughs> well, your note might have said that Dan Mitrioni also knew Jim Jones when Jim Jones was a child. That's the one. Is <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, that this is the uh, one of the central sort of connections between Jim Jones and the agency. The most uh, obvious one, I suppose, is that he was uh, at least in, they were at least in the orbit of each other back in the, uh, I want to say 40s. Is that right? Uh, At least by the 50s. Um, They were from the same town in Indiana, which I'm obsessed now with the US (laughs) state of Indiana. Um, And here's an interesting note, not to go completely into Jim Jones territory, but when Jim Jones was like, I want to say around middle school, maybe like early uh, teens, he actually sold monkeys like door to door. Yeah. And no one really knew where he got the monkeys from. But a lot of people have postulated that perhaps Dan Mitrioni, who was traveling all over Latin America, was Was (laughs) giving him monkeys to sell. I mean, to be fair, I did a, a Halloween special last year, and I like to get kind. Of, I liked getting kind of crazy with that one. My theory mm-hmm. was that um, the Mothman. After a few beers, you know, my theory was the Mothman was a, a golden crown flying fox from the Philippines that the CIA <laughs> brought in to freak out people in Point Pleasant while they were dust on LSD. So, by all means, you know, I'm I'm totally open to the idea that Jim Jones was getting monkeys from. <laughs> From the He's CIA. getting them from somewhere and like, I don't know. But um, <laughs> so Dan Mitrioni, in the course of his life, he was actually kidnapped in Uruguay by the Tupamaros guerrillas. Okay. And they held him for <clears throat> ransom or not. I don't think ransom. They were trying to get, you know, some political aims. They ended up killing him. Yeah. And uh, if any of my, any of your listeners have seen, haven't seen the movie State of Siege, it is an exquisite film that depicts the uh, kidnapping and execution of Dan Mitrioni. So highly recommend. Yeah, I'm going to have to check that out. I don't think I've seen that. 
so then we've also got um so we've got these strange CIA connections that kind of have already presented themselves immediately. Uh, and as we go along a bit further. Well, I, I guess I didn't say. So uh, Lieutenant Pena had resigned in 67. He was traveling around with Dan Mitrioni. But in 68, after the assassination, he rejoins the LAPD. <laughs> Like How? in the immediate aftermath, immediate the LAPD aftermath. hires him to be the lead investigator for Special Operations Senator. I mean, you know, it's it's just so obvious. I I hate to sound like one of those people, you know, but it just feels like every little detail about this is another kick in the balls. And yeah, you, it's so obvious what's going on here. Um, yeah, it's not particularly subtle. I agree with your assessment that, like, I think that the obvious nature of just being able to see through it is kind of the point. Okay, so yeah, why don't we go a little bit deeper then on, on Sirhan Sirhan and see what we can tease out there. Absolutely. So when, like we said, when Sirhan was arrested, he did not remember the shooting. Mm-hmm. They also found that he was not on drugs, as far as they could tell, or drunk. Right. And then they found, because this is very this is a very interesting point, because the police then and now they actually use hypnosis all the time and they found him to be incredibly easy to hypnotize. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, when you say they, they use hypnosis, is that to try and I suppose, retrieve the memories of what he was doing uh, in the hours leading up to the shooting or is that to coax a confession out of him or, or what? Well, that's a good question. The normal usage of hypnosis, um, it's kind of a gray zone, both legally and um, according to like good investigative procedure, as mm-hmm. you might imagine. But uh, if you read in between the lines or read like critical reports of their use of hypnosis, they basically do uh, basically coerce people into signing false confessions all the time using hypnosis. It's incredible that they're um, allowed to do that. I, mean, I don't know why I'm surprised at this point, you know, all the things that I've learned about the way police act but it is kind of shocking that that's allowed (laughs) yeah i only found out about it like a couple years ago and i just could not believe it how widespread it was so one of the sergeants who brought him in in the hours uh right after the shooting said i was impressed by sirhan's composure and relaxation he appeared less upset to me than individuals arrested for a traffic violation so there's this sense of kind of eerie calm about him in light of what he's just done, like the magnitude of what he's just done as well. Yeah. Like it doesn't really conform to even like 
political normal political assassins right mm-hmm. like the guy who shot abraham lincoln he like basically jumped off a balcony and broke his leg and was like shouting and running around yeah and, like, yeah nothing no, nothing like that yeah no kind of surplus of adrenaline or anything like that here just dazed calm somewhat confused but otherwise cooperative and Exactly. And Matt, as your audience knows, especially with your series you're working on, the CIA was working on uh, hypnosis. They were Um, indeed. There's a recently declassified document called Hypnosis and Covert Operations, which uh, discusses different cases, different uses, and it specifically calls out a robbery murder that happened in Denmark in 1951 where the person who carried out the robbery murder was hypnotized. For I've not heard of this, this memo. Holy shit. So this guy had no memory of doing the robbery or anything? Correct. I think the guy might have even been exonerated because they could pretty conclusively prove that some other person uh, who I think did get arrested had hypnotized him into doing a crime. Holy shit. At least, it, like... So this CIA document talks about how there is a precedent for hypnotizing people into doing crimes. Yeah, and there is also a precedent for um, for what we're talking about here which, in America itself, which is... So do you remember, have you read Chaos by Tom O'Neill? Uh, yes, I have. Um, do you remember the story he relates about the, the man on the airbase who... He's alleged to have, well, he he did rape and murder um, the little girl. Yeah. And he had, in fact, been, um, he'd been suffering from migraines. And one of the people who treated him was, was Jolly West, who is basically an, an MK Ultra wizard, effectively. Yeah. Um, and also, as with the guy who robbed the bank, claimed to have no memory of what he'd done. And. Yeah, I mean, it's, nothing's confirmed or proven about that, but there's a lot of, I suppose, circumstantial evidence that makes it very sus, as they say. That's correct. Yeah. I think that there's also been a shooting because there's, you know, there's stage hypnosis. And one of the tricks that they don't really do as much now, but basically hypnotizing someone into firing a gun at someone else. Right, yeah. <laughs> which yeah. they can get people to do. And I believe there was even... I like either in chaos or some other book uh, or maybe Lisa Pisa's book, there's a, another instance where they actually had a shooting because one of the guns was loaded by accident. So like there's a precedent for people firing, not realizing that a gun is actually loaded while hypnotized. So the guy on the airbase was called Jimmy Shaver. He was an airman at um, Lackland air force base, had no criminal record but he did have, you know, severe debilitating migraine, migraines. Um, a little girl, three-year-old girl called Sherry Jo Horton disappeared. Um, not to get too in the weeds about this case, but they found him covered in blood with no memory of what he'd been doing for the last few hours. And then that's when all the, you know, the Jolly West connections started to come out um, as investigators started to look into more of the, the migraine treatment that he'd been subjected to on the base. So, yeah, tell that for what it's worth, I guess. Um, but it's very so, creepy. So we know that this stuff 
can exist. Yeah. But we also know a lot more than that. Like we know that no less than James Jesus Angleton, head of counterintelligence for the CIA. And personal hero of mine. <laughs> I sort of hero of mine too. Like I'll <laughs> I'll sign off on that. Uh he ran a project called ZR Alert. Yep. Which was running parallel to ZR Rifle. So break down ZR Alert for the listeners. Yeah. So ZR Alert was run by Staff D, and it basically ran parallel to ZR Rifle, which was, um, I guess, initially it was to assassinate Castro, I, I believe, right? Yeah. Yeah. And by some people's reckoning, it uh, might have been the backbone of the Kennedy assassination. He was almost certainly um, involved to one degree or another in three uh, quite key assassinations. So RFK, JFK, and the murder of Mary Pinchot Mayer. Um, Pinchot and Mayer. It, it would not surprise me yeah. at all if Pinchot Mayer, yeah. Uh, did I say Mayer? Well, um, I don't know. It might be Mayer, Meyer. I don't <laughs> know how these wasps pronounce their names sometimes. But yeah, so he's... Definitely, um, plot. He's best. He's definitely believable as somebody that would be involved in a political assassination on the scale of RFK. I mean, he he had been before in other countries around the world. That's right. And ZR Alert, running parallel to ZR Rifle, it interfaced with the National Security Agency. Right. Which, when like. If you think the CIA, I'm not, I don't mean you, but like listeners, when, if you think the CIA is secretive, like the NSA is like next level. I think one of the, the testaments really to the NSA's efficacy is the fact that they don't seem to get talked about as much as the CIA, you know, in, in our sort of circles. They'll get mentioned here and there, a bit of surveillance and whatnot, but they never seem to get the full spotlight shone on them the same way as the CIA does. I completely agree. And there's, I think, two reasons for that. Mm. I think the first is that the CIA is sort of made to be the public, like, redheaded stepchild, like, taking some of the blame some of the time. Yeah. yeah. When the NSA is actually running the stuff that is, like, deadly serious. That yeah. That you just never hear about. Yeah. Um, and the flip side, too, is that le- they have the same sort of legal protections that are in place in Britain for the, what, what's the act that um, makes it so you can't publish certain things about MI5 and MI6? Oh, the, uh, you mean like the, uh, the official secrets act? Yeah, we have one for the NSA and right. we, nobody talks about it. Yeah. Including people in conspiracy circles. Okay. So basically, yeah, in Britain, we also have uh, privacy injunctions or they're called gagging orders as well. And mm-hmm. what they do, I think they're called D notices. Sorry. That's what they're called. And what they do is they not only prevent publication of um, embarrassing details about, you know, MI6 or MI5 activity or GCHQ activity, they also prevent the newspapers even mentioning that they have been hit with a gagging order. So mm-hmm. officially nothing at all is happening. You know, there is, there's been no crime committed and there has been no investigation and there has been no D notice even issued, you know, um, which if 
the NSA is, is anything like that, then yeah, there, there's a lot of stuff that probably bears scrutiny that we'll never, ever hear about. Exactly. Like it's been a pet project of mine starting to look into the NSA and I'm like real freaked out. (laughs) Yeah. I kind of, I, the closest I've come really to talking about them was when I did my little Jared Leto episode, but it was only ever kind of a a glancing sort of look at them. Mm -hmm. I would really like to go deep on the NSA and figure out what the hell is actually happening there, which is impossible, but you know, why not try? Yeah. So, according to the book, The Search for the Manchurian Candidates, and this cites this pretty well, James Jesus Angleton's counterintelligence team was working with a hypnosis expert from California, and they were working with him in Mexico City in 1960. Right. And, I mean, again, the, you, people could be hearing this and saying, well, it's, it's all kind of circumstantial, which... On one level it is, but when you when you take it together, it does start to build up a, a very convincing kind of alternative um, account of RFK's assassination, I would say. Absolutely. Like, if Sirhan did all of this because he was mad at, you know, Robert Kennedy for supporting Israel, there wouldn't be all these incredibly deep and spooky connections. So do we know which hypnotist he was working with? Good question. So a lot of people have been wondering which guy, which hypnosis expert was this? They've talked about like Jolly West. Uh, I mean, the California part sort of narrows it down. Other people have talked about Estabrooks, Erickson, Greenson, but crucial to the Sirhan narrative, uh, one of the major contenders for which guy they're talking about is Dr. William Joseph Bryan. Uh, Listeners, I highly uh, recommend that you go and Google Dr. William J. Bryan and have a look at this magnificent handlebar mustache. It's it's definitely a museum piece, is that? You can tell that it's late 60s, early 70s (laughs) for sure. And he would actually tell prostitutes that he he worked for the CIA uh, quite openly. That's right. Yeah. So he was the president of the American Institute of Hypnosis, and he lived in Los Angeles. Right. Okay. So he's in the time and place, and he's got the skills. Exactly. Now, he was actually placed on probation by the California State Board of Medical Examiners after he had been found guilty of having sexual relations with four women he hypnotized. Fucking hell. I mean, like in his practice specifically. Yeah. Yeah. So this guy is, I imagine, heavily compromised. And if you're an enterprising CIA agent, you know, you've got this skilled hypnotist who, you know, has probably done this to more women than just the ones that he's been accused of. That's pretty good blackmail material there if you want him to do something that. Uh, strays well outside the boundaries of what's legal. Exactly. And speaking of straying well outside the boundaries of what's legal, we know that Dr. Brian worked on the CIA subproject Artichoke. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is one of the subprojects for MKUltra. Yeah. <clears throat> and in just on the cusp of Artichoke uh, formally becoming MKUltra, there was a memo sent around the CIA at the time 
that did stay, they had achieved the ability to uh, prolong and control the amount of time that test, sub- test subjects were being kept in a state of uh, narco-hypnosis. They called it the twilight zone or the limbo state. So we know that they had achieved that point where they could, um, yeah, where they could keep somebody submerged uh, for as long as they wanted to before bringing them back out of it. That's correct. And they were looking at also combining electroshock with drugs with hypnosis. Like <laughs> you get maybe all three going, you could do some really incredible things, yeah. presumably. Yeah. Which is, I mean, so that kind of glances at what what ended up happening in MK Ultra, where they were they were experimenting with things like psychic driving. Um, we've mentioned the the Savage case. Um, they certainly seem convinced that it was within their grasp to achieve this kind of thing because they kept the project running for so long. Um, I can't imagine that was all just a grift, you know, just to keep keep the research funds coming in. Oh yeah, no. I mean, if you read popular histories of the MK Ultra program, even by like books written by people that I mostly respect, the general like narrative is like, yeah, they did some fucked up shit. Oh, I don't know if I should should swear on your show. I guess you can edit it. Oh, it's absolutely fine, some... uh, fine one. Swear away. Okay, they did some fucked up shit, mm-hmm. but it didn't work, and they pushed yeah. that most of MK Ultra was about drugs, which is like categorically false it was mostly about hypnosis yeah and it was interesting that they were so unsuccessful in their endeavors that they felt it was prudent to destroy the vast majority of their their research material because you know it was useless it was it was garbage so of course we can't let the (laughs) the senate commission see this or the rockefeller commission and along the same lines and i'm sure you've probably talked about in this new series you're doing but like CIA, the CIA was carrying out MKUltra, but they were not the only ones with like mind control programs. The Army had one, mm-hmm. the Air Force had one, the Navy had one, the Department of Energy had one. Yeah, I, I did not know like, that about the Department of Energy. If you look at some show like Stranger Things, where like <laughs> the Department of Energy got into some truly insane shit. Like, oh, holy shit, I'm going to have to look up look yeah. into this now <laughs> no for sure they were like experimenting like what radiation could do to like mind control like really dark stuff yeah um but to get back i guess to the topic at hand it's so hard not to branch off and just start exploring all this other shit the, but the point is there are there were other programs that didn't get shut down like the cia's which is notable anyway so dr brian among other things like working on project artichoke dr brian was brought in and he was the guy who induced albert DeSalvo's confession to being the boston strangler which is he did that under hypnosis holy shit so yeah (laughs) i mean i'm i'm trying to think of something intelligent to respond to you (laughs) but (laughs) I words have failed me. I yeah, I have no idea what to say, what to do with that information. Um, that is insane. I like. I literally don't know if DeSalvo was even the strangler, or if he was the strangler and hypnotized, or if he was a patsy. I don't know. Yeah. Like I don't know what to do with this either, man. 
crazy. Um, so yeah, you also mentioned that um, he was the hypnotist for Candy Jones, and I. I... Oh man, <laughs> oh, Can- Candy Jones is uh, one of the uh, more like one one of the best documented yet still subjective like stories of MK Ultra brainwashing out there. Like Candy Jones was a real person; she was a pinup model. And she later asserted that she had been brainwashed for, I think, decades, basically. What the fuck? Did she kill anybody while she was under hypnosis? That interesting question. No, uh, the way she frames it, uh, she was mostly being used as a courier. So she could basically travel around the world, which she was already doing as a model and running a model agency. And one of the things that she said was that whatever they were doing with the uh, brainwashing made it so that she had perfect recall when she was like, you know, in the zone, Mm. like in a certain like trance state. Yeah. And so she could like be in a room and be able to record everything everyone was saying. And presumably you could like, she could like, you know, play it back for people. Right. And anyway, the point was she was saying that she wasn't like an assassin. She was just, they were running tests on her to see what they could and couldn't do. Yeah. I know that that was a big goal of theirs was to turn people into um, almost information vessels, but they would never be aware yeah. that they had this information. And then somewhere else, another handler would meet them and use hypnosis to kind of unlock their minds and retrieve the information that had been sent to them. Yeah. And I'll like there's Candy Jones is one of the like more like well-documented cases and it's still somewhat subjective. Like it's debatable what was going on with her, but there's, you know, people who have almost like built on the lore <laughs> to the point where, you know, you're not sure whether it's actually real, but, the theory is that you can basically do that plus teach them how to kill or plus, you know, have them do sex work or this or that um, real dark stuff. But yeah, the point being that Dr. Brian was the, he did have a, I, I believe he was the uh, hypnosis uh, doctor for Candy Jones. So then I, I suppose that raises the question. So let's say that, okay, so Siran Siran was under some kind of hypnotic control suggestion to mm-hmm. um, assassinate Robert F. Kennedy. So where do we think that he actually fell into the clutches of uh, the people who were running these programs? Well, let's see here. The theory is, let's see here. So Sirhan Sirhan. We talked about born in Palestine, mm-hmm. was in a refugee camp. His family moved to Pasadena. His dream, because he was a short guy, his dream was to be a horse jockey. I believe you described him as a, a short king, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have um, a fondness for him. He just looks like a sweet kid, other than like what he was reported to be to have done. But So Sirhan trained to be a jockey. Mm-hmm. but he fell off of a racehorse and then he was hospitalized 
And that happened, that hospital, hospitalization took place in Corona, California. Right. Now he fell and was hospitalized, but he was in the hospital for weeks. Yeah. And this hospitalization is somewhat anomalous because he was hospitalized for far longer than what the description of his injuries would normally require. Mm -hmm. And he would, according to the FBI, he would visit a doctor 13 13 times more uh, in one year, the year before the assassination. But, But like... According to his medical records, like he wasn't actually seriously injured, but then he visited the doctor 13 times in one year. Right. Okay. So somebody was, somebody possibly had taken an interest in him beyond just his injuries. Right. And so Lisa Pease points out that in Corona, California, there's a Naval Surface Warfare Center. And that would be the closest likely place that he could have been brainwashed basically right okay to that end his after his fall and his long hospital stay his family said that his personality changed drastically how do they mean do they mean he be he became moodier he became more depressed like frank colson style you know oh yes correct and more aggressive just all of the above like he was very sweet then just he became meaner, more depressed, uh, more distant, more dissociative, you might say. Yeah, yeah. So from there, he still trying to be a jockey, still interested in that. He starts working at the Corona Ranch. Yeah, yeah. This is um, <laughs> this is when my brain really started to sort of melt out of my ears. But sorry, Jimmy, go on, mate. So. The Corona Ranch was owned by Desi Arnaz from the show I Love Lucy. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but it's pretty well recorded. It's pretty well asserted that the real owner of the ranch, or at least the you know partial owner, silent owner, was Mickey Cohen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, listeners the will, gangster. yeah, listeners will remember him from our uh, American Tabloid series from a few months ago, Mickey Cohen. Mm-hmm. Very interesting guy. Yes. And interestingly enough, the Ambassador Hotel itself was also suspected to be owned or controlled by Mickey Cohen. So it's from there, it's it's speculated that it's possible that Siran may have also been hypnotized at the ranch as well. That's great. Yeah. I mean, I do remember um, during working on the other series that Mickey Cohen was tasked by uh, members of the syndicate on the East Coast with helping Richard Nixon's campaign sort of kick into high gear. He would hold fundraiser dinners for him and things like that. Um, so it definitely seems like it's plausible, definitely, that they would have tapped him up once more, um, you know, to help them out with something else, maybe. Absolutely. So. With Sirhan, basically, he had two main lawyers to defend him. Uh, One of his lawyers was named Grant Cooper, Mm -hmm. who was a mafia lawyer. He represented a bunch of different mobsters, uh, most notably, probably, handsome Johnny Roselli. Why not? Why not at this point? All the stars are here. (laughs) 
the other lawyer was William F. Pepper, mm-hmm. who is a, I guess he sort of almost frames himself as like the conspiracy theory lawyer in the sense that he gets involved in the law cases surrounding actual like conspiracy theories. Like he was involved with the Martin Luther King assassination yeah. cases. And I think he was, I forget exactly what he did with nine 11. I think he's involved in the family's case uh, or something to that end. Okay. Right. <laughs> so William F. Pepper actually gets a different hypnotist to check out Sirhan Sirhan. Yeah. And we have a quote here uh, that I could read uh, from what this hypno- hypnotist says. Yep, go ahead. <clears throat> I directly observed Mr. Sirhan a number of times switch into at least one distinctively different alter personality state, a personality state that responds in robot-like fashion upon cue and adopts the behavior of firing a gun at a firing range. The alter personality state is heretofore referred to as range mode. So basically, where to even begin with this? So it's essentially he um, on command will go into this state and adopt a pose very similar to firing at a, a paper target on a shooting range. Correct. And he is not aware that he's doing that when he does it. Correct. Right. That's the thing. They didn't need to make a brainwashed assassin. They just need to make a guy who will draw on a public figure, which is a much more reasonable uh, thing to figure out how to do. Somebody they can trigger, essentially. Right. Because if you could brainwash someone into being an actual killer that person would probably be too valuable to use for something like this Mm -hmm. if you could get someone to just pull a gun yeah and fire it both that is like that is what they need that's gold dust from an intelligence point of view i mean mm -hmm. it's a you know it's, it's not like he needs to be a highly trained secret agent he's firing at somebody in a hotel kitchen from five feet away, all he needs to do is hit the guy. That's it. Um, much easier and than. It, yeah, and it presumably doesn't require all the training that actual combat training would probably need to, yeah. you know, happen. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I mean, we have uh, we've got Siran. Um, he can be triggered to go into range mode. Um, and now this brings up the. <laughs> The right. Let me set myself for this. So this brings up the possibility, on the evidence, in fact, that Sirhan was firing blank cartridges um, at Kennedy. It's entirely possible. Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, for one thing, Thane Eugene Caesar would probably not have agreed to go along with the plan. Uh, knowing that he would have been in the firing range, like in the uh, line of fire, um, unless he knew that the guy was firing blanks. Uh, Further, if you look at the coroner's report, basically the firing patterns indicate that it's the person on the right, not in front. So like other people didn't get hit from that angle, if that makes sense. Yeah. There's, it matches the evidence is the point, basically. Right. Yeah. 
Um, and then what happens to Sirhan then over so the over the next year? He's he's basically he's locked up for this almost immediately. Like the the case that is, um, mm-hmm. it's they have him. They build the case pretty quickly. Bish bash bosh, he's done for. He's going down. Um, basically, interestingly though, the police notice. I mean. Obviously, they noticed like how weird he was acting. They also thought it was really strange that he seemed to have a fear that his prison cell was bugged, which is like you know not a normal thing that normal yeah. prisoners worry about. Yeah. And his school studies show that he was studying in school German, Russian, and Chinese. He already spoke English and Arabic. Yeah. So there's perhaps the suggestion that he was already on people's radar before even his accidents. Yeah. And I mean, so if we sort of step back a second and just have a think about, so you've got this guy, Sirhan Sirhan, described as a nice, bright kid. Um, His dream is to be a jockey. You know, he's obviously very smart. He's uh, adept at learning different languages. And Mm -hmm. where most of us would just see someone who seems like, you know, kind of a cool guy, the intelligence state sees somebody who can basically be, their mind can be kidnapped. Um, you know, if we go along with the idea that he was actually some kind of hypnotized assassin. And as a result, his life is completely destroyed. Um, all for the sake of, of what, you know, canceling the future, I suppose. Um, yeah. It, it's stuff like this that when you think on it, you know, beyond all the, the insane connections that fuck me up quite a lot when um, I think about this stuff. People who just get caught in the gears of this hideous system. Yeah, I mean, Sirhan's life was ruined, to say obviously nothing of, you know, Bobby Kennedy. Yeah, yeah. At least two people's lives ruined. And then the ramifications, I guess, spread out from there because you then Mm -hmm. have Nixon coming along. Reagan's not far behind. I think he's governor of California by... Is it by 69 or 70? Something like that. Yeah. So these guys are kind of avatars for a new state that is emerging. Um, and it's the assassination of people like RFK that are, are helping speed that process up, I suppose you could say. That's right. This is when we kind of get into the more esoteric stuff. Would that be the right term? Yes. Um, (laughs) Quite looking forward to this. Basically, uh, I mean, Sirhan Sirhan seems like an open and shut case. He clearly drew on on Bobby Kennedy and fired whether or not, you know, he actually had bullets in his gun, right? But... In addition to the obvious, like everyone in the whole hotel knew that he did that, they found in Sirhan's 
like room, these journals, these diaries. <laughs> and they were full of automatic writing. Which I don't know if you, if your listeners know what automatic writing is. So, so basically, automatic writing is that when you just kind of put pen to paper and just go for it. Um, you just, you just let the pen do the work, more or less. And you you're not even trying to think; you're yeah. just letting it write. Yeah. And your unconscious mind fills the page up. Um, would Would you like to know what his unconscious mind wrote? I I would love to know. Please tell me. He wrote. Long live Nasser, and also DeSalvo, die S. Salvo, DeSalvo, just writing De Albert DeSalvo's Salvo. name over and over. Which, as we remember, Albert DeSalvo has no known connection. Like, Sirhan and the Boston Strangler have nothing to do with each other, except, presumably, Dr. <laughs> Dr. Brian. Jesus Christ. <laughs> He also, Sirhan also wrote, help me please. And he also wrote the classic RFK must die. RFK must die. See, classic. there are, as we've gone along so far, I keep trying to find, you know, little Jenga pieces to pull out of the, of the tower to try and collapse this, you know, just as a trying to be critical. But then you hit me with something like that, the salva, and I'm... I'm completely adrift and I have no kind of debunking sort of <laughs> plan of attack. I don't know what to do with that information. Why was he writing that name? Yeah, no, like with other conspiracy theories, there's always that nagging doubt. Like, am I really right about this? Yeah. With this, it's like, no, it's definitely brainwashing. Yeah. <laughs> I am convinced at this point. Yep. So his journal also showed other possible targets that could have happened, like other than Bobby Kennedy, like Nasser. Yeah, I mean he was writing "Long Live Nasser," but he was obsessed with Nasser to some for some reason, and he also was writing "Ambassador Goldberg Must Die." Ambassador Goldberg, and which, yeah, Ambassador Goldberg referred to Ar Arthur Goldberg, who was under uh, JFK. He was the Secretary of Labor. Then he was put on the Supreme Court. And then in a pretty like anomalous, like it doesn't normally go like this. Generally, if you're on the Supreme Court, you stay on it. Mm. But Lyndon B. Johnson convinced him to resign from the Supreme Court to become a UN ambassador. Which is like weird, right? Very weird. Either way. Like, there's a strong possibility that whoever was running Sirhan wanted to kill Ambassador Goldberg. I, do you know, the thing is as well, I, I'm trying to think of this from the point of view of the people running these ops. And if you know that you have somebody here who you've definitely achieved it, you've definitely unlocked this ability, a hypnotic suggestion, I suppose you would just go hog wild with it wouldn't you you'd, you'd be thinking of all types of people that you'd like removed you know bothersome types yeah and you don't know which operation is going to get approved mm -hmm. or like you know so you maybe have a couple like you have a couple cranks with a couple different people that they could <laughs> like have evidence that they're 
like going to assassinate spreading your bets i suppose i mean it makes sense um they do the same thing when they plan i was going to say legitimate operations but it's the cia so they do the same thing when they plan other you know black ops they they come up with many different uh methods of approach and plans of attack and whatnot different targets like you said just on the off chance that um one of them gets approved uh yeah, and so in the short term, this was these diaries were shown to the public like, look, he's crazy, mm-hmm. which like fair. That clearly like writing in your diary like I want to kill RFK yeah. like shows like a level of uh, forethought or whatever. But separate from that though, they didn't show the entire journal and that only several journals and only later did people see uh, some of these other things that perhaps undermined the state's case. Yeah. Uh, specifically, in his journal, in his notebook, there is the handwriting of a different person. Come again? And, thi- and this handwriting says, electronic equipment, this appears to be the right amount of preponderance. <sighs> Now, if you'll think back, I don't know if we got to it, uh, but we might jump back to Dr. Brian one more time. Mm -hmm. But Dr. Brian had electronic hypnosis equipment. Right. Okay. There's the possibility that perhaps, you know, the hypnotist wrote something in this and just forgot about it or, you know. (laughs) So, I mean, it it speaks again, though, I think. There's also the possibility that this is something on some level – that they didn't care if it was discovered. Um, comes back to that thing we were talking about, um, about eventually maybe they knew these diaries were going to be fully you know, released. And in some ways it would help them sort of cement the, the impression of themselves as like all powerful, you know, if this kind of thing gets out and you can't do anything about it. There's also the possibility that maybe there's even more evidence because there is, uh, there was a lot of really weird chain of custody issues with the LAPD investigation. Like there's weird stuff with the gun. There's weird stuff with like other pieces of evidence. So like it's possible that they meant to get rid of these diaries and they just didn't get to. So yeah, there's also the interesting connection, and I my accent will not allow me to pronounce this word but there's also an interesting connection to the ancient and mystical order of the rose crucius uh i can't pronounce the, the word ro- rosicrucian 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 Ros- i can't yeah. do it i'm so sorry <laughs> i'm too no i'm too northern man <laughs> i can't get that word out um yeah so he joined that just a few months before his his fall from the horse, um, which would imply that he was possibly being groomed way before he was even in the hospital. That's, I mean, I think so. Mm. Like he joined the Rosicrucian order, uh, which um, for your listeners who might not know what that is, it is the Rosicrucians are like an esoteric magical order. (laughs) Amazing. I've been reading um, um, a, a book about the Knights Templar. Um, it's literally just called The Templars. And it's sent me down quite a rabbit hole of reading about all the different groups it morphed into. And I've started looking into these outfits quite a lot more. 
Um, That's right. The Rosicrucians uh, definitely claim to be related to the <laughs> Templars. It's you know likely that they are lying about that, like most of the other groups that do. I mean, but, if you're running an esoteric order and you don't claim lineage from the Knights Templar, what are you even doing, man? I mean, it's just amateur hour yeah. if you don't. <laughs> Sorry, go on, Jim. But no, I mean, so the Rosicrucians uh, preceded Theosophy, but they are somewhat similar. Like real experts would probably crucify me for saying that. But the point is, it's a magical order. Mm. There's a lot to them. And Sirhan got involved with them uh, in 1966. <laughs> right. And there does also appear to be a connection between this order and um, the CIA, and in particular, Colombia in 1948. So do you want to break that down for us a little bit? Absolutely. So I didn't know any of this before I read Lisa Pisa's book. Again, I can't recommend it enough. Mm -hmm. But there appears to have been a possible Rosicrucian CIA connection to another high-profile politician's assassination in Bogota, Colombia in 1948. Holy shit. Specifically, yeah. Specifically, it was Jorge Eliser El Gaetan. Uh, I liked the hopeful Eliser as though I'm going to be able to help you with that and I couldn't even pronounce the name. I know. I speak Spanish, but like I was like, oh shit, I didn't look at the middle name. <laughs> anyway, Jorge Gaetan. He was the Bobby Kennedy of his time in Colombia. Yeah. And he appeared to have been genuinely concerned about the plight of the poor people in his country, yeah. which, you know, Colombia has tons of riches, lots of poor people. Yeah, yeah. So he made his own party and he was trying to, you know, take political power. In April 1948, Gaetan was assassinated in the streets. Now, the killing was blamed on a man named Juan Roa Sierra. This man was then, in turn, killed by an angry mob. Yeah. After that, there was an uprising in Bogota known as the Bogotazo, which is like, you know, that was a famous event in history. Obviously, the assassination of Gaetan was as well. Yeah. But almost immediately, people noticed all of these weird things with this assassination. Like, for instance, that uh, Roa had been interested like Sirhan Sirhan in the occult. Like Sirhan Sirhan, Roa was a member of the Rosicrucians. Mm -hmm. He had joined at the recommendation of an older German astrologer friend. Okay, guys, you know the, the uh, spook antenna, Germany, South America, it should be pinging, pinging and cracking right now. Of course, you know, this is after World War II, so the Nazis would be floating all over. Yep, yep. <laughs> so witnesses saw this whole thing play out, the assassination, his basically his lynching, and then the Bogotazo. Like, the whole city saw it. Including um, and uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, is that right? That's right. See, he saw it. I, I love him, so I take that as, yep. I trust his word. You know, if he says this, then I believe him. No, I mean, I believe him too. Yeah. He saw it and he, or he saw evidence that he, that led him to believe that Roa was a patsy and that the real shooter or shooters had gotten lost in the crowd. 
Uh, It's kind of a cliche at this point. I I don't like the meme, but time really is a flat circle, isn't it? These things just (laughs) echo and repeat across the years. You could you could right. remove his name and put in Oswald, and you know <laughs> it's the same story. It's the same operation. Yeah. So in Gabriel Garcia Marquez's memoir, he described seeing a man in a gray suit incite the crowd against Juan Sierra or Juan Roa Sierra to have a false assassin killed in order to protect the identity of the real one. Yeah, I mean, the convenience of that is pretty obvious, having the assassin uh, killed immediately. Um, and then um, you mentioned as well to me that um, at the time, Columbia was uh, going to host the the conference to the ninth Pan-American uh, conference, sorry, um, which launched OAS. Uh, so obviously having this guy out of the way before that would have been very helpful. Yeah, I think that the powers that be, specifically the United States, was worried that Gaetan would not have Colombia join the OAS, and the OAS was crucial for stopping the you know rising red tide yeah. during the Cold War. Yeah, right. I mean, I I did an episode about um, drugs and the utility of them to a uh, state and non-state actors a c- couple of months ago. And it, I, I covered uh, Klaus Barbie's involvement in the, the cocaine coup in Bolivia. Mm-hmm. We know this stuff has happened. Um, so this to me is completely in line with what we already know about how uh, the, the U S empire has operated in that part of the world. That's right. So several people, like historians and different Colombians, they believed that the CIA was behind Gaetan's assassination. Mm-hmm. Gaetan was advocating on behalf of the poor, and he had a large student movement behind yeah. him. And he had actually written a book, The Problem of Land, yeah. where Gaetan says that private land ownership was unnatural. And that the land belongs to everyone. Yeah. Um, I mean, you mentioned this uh, as well, but um, that that's basically grounds for assassination in the CIA's eyes if you're in South America and you're saying stuff like that. Absolutely. All the more so if you're like, have a real chance of becoming, <laughs> yes. you know, the leader of Colombia. Yeah. In 1974, you know, a couple of years after the assassination of Bobby Kennedy, a journalist named Betsy Langman happened to be interviewing uh, Dr. Brian in his office. And during the interview, Dr. Brian, who was never known for his modesty, he told her that he was probably the leading expert in the entire world on hypnosis. That's such annoying office colleague energy. You know, well, I just do this as a day job. I'm really the... The leading expert in the world on hypnosis. And so she tried to uh, ask about Sirhan Sirhan. Right. And mind you, this is the first time he has been asked by a journalist, as far as anyone knows, about Sirhan Sirhan. Yeah. Yeah. As she wrote, Dr. Brian got agitated and she asked him if Sirhan could have hypnotized himself. Dr. Brian said, really, hypnosis is meaningless. 
What what is hypnosis? Yeah. What what <laughs> whomst among us has been hypnotized? <laughs> and then he goes on to say that um <clears throat> basically that self-hypnosis is really weird and he sort of says like you can kind of hypnotize yourself into doing anything. <laughs> Which, you know, like suddenly doesn't sound so much like an expert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he had been, as she writes, very loquacious until Sirhan Sirhan came up. And at this point, he starts getting (laughs) very agitated. And then he says, this has been gone over 50 million times. And she's like, no, no one has ever asked you about this. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, doctor, but I'm, I must point out that nobody has ever asked you about this except me. Um. And he says, if that is all you've got to interview me about, you are wasting my time and yours. It just irks me to hear all this old shit. That is just ridiculous. And then he stormed out of his own office. <laughs> Imagine that, storming yeah, out yeah. of your own office. <laughs> and he was yelling, this interview is over. And he just leaves her in his office. <laughs> I know. Uh, so, so okay. So, the only hypnotist in Los Angeles who is known to have electrical equipment that allowed people, like, allowed hypnosis. The only person that anyone could ever find who matched that description was Dr. William Jennings or Joseph Bryan. Yeah. Dr. Brian had invented something he called the bear, bear. which was the Brian electronic automated robot. Okay. Cool. And the, the bear system was able to simultaneously hypnotize up to seven patients, plugging them in and out of their trances and provide each one with a personalized therapeutic suggestion while Dr. Brian can go out and play golf or quote, do what else. Do whatever else turns him. Very on. poor choice of words with this guy. Come on. Um, right. I mean, so it, it say it's, it's described as a robot. What do they actually mean by that? Is it actually some kind of computer? Or yeah, there's a picture of him um, on my thread. There, you can see it. Also, if you just Google Doctor William Joseph Bryan, mm. there's only like five or six pictures. You'll probably see him with his stupid mustache (laughs) and he's in front of this like big computer terminal kiosk looking thing. Uh, It's like the size of a desk. And as far as I can tell, like he would have different rooms and there would be like lights and some sort of hypnotic devices. And he could basically have different people in the rooms being hypnotized while he like, I don't know, does whatever or you know whatever the fuck he was hinting at (laughs) i mean this guy is um very comical and all but the the use of something electronic you know to hypnotize uh subjects instead of uh chemicals it does kind of tie into something i started thinking towards the end of my mk ultra episode when i was like i wonder if that was part of a a deliberate shift to look more at the possibility of technology and media uh, in programming people, I suppose, rather than you mm-hmm. know relying on on drugs alone. Um, and if it if it was, I mean, this would sort of not sort of semi validate my sneaking suspicion that much of the the modern sort of technological uh, infrastructure that we interact with every day, a lot of it, I think, is kind of 
MK Ultra adjacent at the very least, kind of offshoots from that project? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's not my research, but, you know, there's some really good work out there about how, uh, for instance, Sesame Street <laughs> was specifically designed in laboratories to like <laughs> basically do counterinsurgency work <laughs> um, for urban populations. There's like research done about like the wavelengths of television and how they can actually induce a partial hypnotic state. Like there's, there's a lot of stuff in that vein. For yeah. Sure. I think um, the timeline is probably a really good example of how to capture people. You know, you can lock people into that, just scrolling endlessly, looking for something to get angry at. Um, done a pretty good job exactly. of uh, counterinsurgency there, I suppose. Oh. I think so. <laughs> So, to wrap up Dr. William Joseph Bryan, so, in 1977, the United States House Select Committee on Assassinations was about to hold hearings on several high-profile assassinations. Mm -hmm. Like, we're talking JFK, yeah. Martin Luther King. I think that they didn't technically include RFK, but, like, everybody was thinking it. Yeah, yeah. And... Um, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure you've covered that there was a wave of very curious deaths right before. Extremely <laughs> curious, including um, Johnny Roselli himself, I think. Um, you That's know, right. Just prior to the, uh, the 75 hearings, I think. Um, uh, he was specifically called to testify and yeah. he wound up in a barrel, right? He'd even gone to like mafia safe houses in Miami which are supposed to be so off the grid, not even the agency can find where they are. And somehow he mm. was still found and they found him floating in a 55-gallon uh, drum, I think. That's right. Yeah. Sorry. No, I mean, so you want to know what happened to Dr. Brian? Do tell. <laughs> he died of a heart attack Perfect. before these hearings could take place. Yeah. And, I mean, it again... I feel like a stuck record now, but this again just accords with that sense of they're not even really trying to uh, be convincing in what they're doing here in the cleanup operation. Yeah, I mean, I think that they're concerned to make sure that he doesn't get in front of the committee. They're not concerned to keep people from figuring out what's going on. Yeah, yeah. And like to play devil's advocate, like Dr. Brian was a big boy. He was kind of fat. So like the the idea that he got a heart attack is entirely also possible. Like I, I'm not going to die on the hill of Dr. Brian being hit with the heart attack gun. Someone could have just but... asked him about Sirhan again and it was one time too many. <laughs> And a gasket just blew, you know. That's right. And uh, as we mentioned, he was uh, credibly linked with uh, connection to Candy Jones. So yeah. here we have just a whole string of quite a life. And he, I, I will say too, he was also the, I believe, the grandson of William jo uh, William Jennings Bryan, right. a prominent uh, politician from many decades before yeah so i mean he was plugged in to that world um and i suppose he he knew what he was getting himself in for when he agreed to uh participate in this stuff yeah i'm not shedding any tears for him yeah do you do you want to know who was the executor of dr brian's will go on 
Dr. Noguchi, the coroner for the stars. He was the coroner for, you know, everything from Marilyn Monroe yep. to Robert Kennedy. Jesus. And um, <laughs> Melvin Belli was uh, Paul Barafarin. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Along with <clears throat> Henry Rothblatt, who was the lawyer for the Watergate burglars. And Melvin Belli was involved in like, good Lord, Zodiac. so many suspicious cases. Yep. Um, I think, was Belli the guy who, yeah, he was, wasn't he? He did the phone call on television. Uh, that was supposed yes, to be the he Zodiac. Did. <laughs> Jesus Christ. He was also Jack Ruby's attorney, which, you know, great job there. Yeah. <laughs> like the list goes on. So the point being that basically the guys involved with Dr. Brian were clearly guys who were trusted. Yeah. Yeah. So there is an abundance of hard and physical evidence to suggest that there was a second shooter and or that Sirhan Sirhan did not fire the fatal shots, if any shots at all. Mm-hmm. It matches eyewitness reports and that matches the evidence. Yeah. Uh, Lisa Peace's book, A Lie Too Big to Fail, exhaustively catalogs the LAPD's very curious investigation and how it doesn't square with many, even most accounts of the shooting. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, we have Thane Eugene Caesar, the suspect who was in the right place to have been the actual shooter. And I just, again, want to note they had the triple name thing in case maybe they had to burn him yeah. as the real shooter. And just to emphasize that we're not just saying right places in, he was in the hotel. I mean, he is an extremely spooky uh, security guard who is next to Bobby Kennedy uh, when the assassination occurs. Uh, so, you know, it's not this, that to me feels way more. Um, solid, you know, than uh, some of the debunkers would have you believe. Absolutely. And then on top of that, we have a would-be gunman who is apprehended, who insists he didn't remember shooting Kennedy, which is not normal political assassin behavior. Mm -hmm. Because as we all know, normal political assassins love to talk about it, love to have manifestos, won't stop talking about why they killed them. A lot of them love to claim credit for stuff that they didn't even do, you know. and yeah. it is not normal political assassin behavior to claim you were a patsy, <laughs> but Sirhan did, and so did Lee Harvey Oswald. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's also not normal to claim you don't remember doing what you did, because that's the opposite of making a clear political statement, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't. I think you've wrapped it up pretty nicely there. Really, like for me, it, it seems a slam dunk that Kennedy was obviously the victim of a conspiracy and Sirhan obviously had nothing uh, other than being there. He had no actual role in his death, you know, in, in actually ending the guy's life. Yeah. I mean, Sirhan had so many suspicious connections to brainwashing. It's like, you can't discount them. So like in my mind, like, I have theories about the JFK assassination, but like, I'm not going to like die on the grassy knoll of any one particular theory of like, was it a Cuban mercenary or a French mercenary or like, was it the hobos? You know, like there's enough ambiguity to where I don't know how everything played out, but with RFK, it's pretty clear they killed him. (laughs) 
And, yeah, yeah. And as for why, that's like a whole other issue. But it seems to me like it was like a Grokai Brothers situation with JFK and RFK. Mm. And um, if I'm not mistaken as well, Sirhan has uh, actually been released now, which is being granted parole anyway, which is good. Yeah. Um, better late than never, I suppose. Yeah, it's nice. Him and John Hinckley finally free. <laughs> John Hinckley's out there on YouTube making nice little songs. It's very nice. I wonder what um, Sirhan's going to do. I, there must be a book deal or something in the works. Yeah, I hope I hope he's fine. I'm sure he probably yeah. will be. Yeah, I, I hope he's okay. Um, I can't imagine... I can't imagine the uh, the level of trauma that you'd be in. Just come into, you're in the lockup and you've been accused of assassinating the ex-president's brother and basically goodbye life. That's it. Yeah. I mean, I don't have the info in front of me, but I think I had heard something about like months or years later, he was just having like almost like a traumatic, uh, like screaming bouts where like it's almost like he was coming out of brainwashing or something mm. and it yeah. just doesn't sound like any fun at all yeah um when he was out as well i'm just looking at an article here uh one of the questions he was asked on his release by a, a journalist was um how he feels about the middle east conflict today <laughs> and he just broke down crying and oh, couldn't speak good um the, the world it must be so alien to you after you've been inside that long. I know. And also to see that nothing has gotten better for the Palestinian people. Yeah. Um, so depressing. God. Yeah. I mean, it's a depressing story all around, really, when you think about it. Because, I mean, we touched on like the, the ramifications of RFK getting killed. And this does kind of loop into what I was talking about on the MK Ultra thing, which is it sounds ridiculous until you actually break down a case like this to say that MK Ultra has actually had a very definable impact on the world that we live in. Um even though we pretend it was it was just a one and done thing and you know they never learned anything from it or they never you they never used anything that they'd learned from it again. But it did actually have a de definable impact on history. Absolutely. I would agree with that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, man, uh, do you want to, do you want to call it a day? That's pretty cool. Yeah. That sounds good to me. Oh man. Well, thanks for doing this, Jimmy. This has been great. Um, <laughs> my brain is all over the floor right now. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty mind melting. <laughs> unbelievable so yeah um and your podcast is programmed to chill which is an amazing name <laughs> thank you cool uh and where can people find you on twitter actually as well if they yeah so they can find me at uh at jimmy fallon gong that's jimmy j-i-m-j-i-m-m-y-f-a-l-u-n-g-o-n-g -G. cool awesome man yeah, I'm um I'm working my way through your show at the moment. Krupp. Yeah. Just, there's too there's too much mind melting content these days, but you definitely do it in a way that you don't really get anywhere else. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, thanks a lot for doing this, dude. This has been great. Yeah, thank you very much.